This week, the world hit pause on the COVID-19 crisis to focus its attention on one of the country's longest-standing viruses, racism. I went to law school in the Twin Cities and have spent most of my adult life visiting the bars and breweries of the state. And though I don't often discuss it, aside from my work for Beer Edge and as a freelance beer writer, I also work as a criminal defense lawyer in the Boston area. During law school, I worked for the Public Defender's Office in Minneapolis for two years. The issues of racial injustice facing Minneapolis and its black residents are hardly new. As with the rest of the country, these issues have long plagued us. Minnesota in particular has a long and complicated racial history, and the killing of George Floyd on May 25th by Minneapolis police officers is just the latest in a long line of atrocious episodes. Floyd's death sent the city reeling, followed by the region and then the rest of the country and beyond. It ignited protests in cities from Los Angeles to Portland, Maine, and everywhere in between. And it sparked another round of discussions about necessary reforms for addressing injustices in our criminal justice system and our greater society at large. The craft beer industry has its own diversity and inclusivity problems. This is hardly news. Built in the image of many of its founders, the overwhelming audience for flavorful beer has long been young, relatively affluent white men. In recent years, those in the so-called craft beer community have started to open their eyes to these long-standing issues. Craft breweries themselves, however, and more specifically those who manage and control them, bear the ultimate responsibility for the future of diversity and inclusion in craft beer. While the subject of diversity and inclusion may be a difficult and even uncomfortable one to address, both within oneself and with other staff and employees, the time has long since come, and passed, to set aside the privileged discomfort. The joke about the overall whiteness and maleness of craft beer has transcended observational humor into a caustic, damaging, and almost embarrassing meme. The subject has gone so long under-addressed that it threatens to undermine the communality that craft brewers love to cite. It's beyond time for some serious reflection, consideration, and action by craft brewers to expand this community. This week we speak with Evan Salee the co-founder and CEO of Fair State Brewing Cooperative in Minneapolis. Evan has seen firsthand the after-effects of the death of George Floyd on the city of Minneapolis. It has also caused him to further explore his company's own lack of diversity, as you will hear in our conversation. It was an engaging and thoughtful one, and Evan is honest in admitting the areas that need improvement within his own house. As the current president of the Minnesota Brewers Guild, he also talks with us about the impacts of COVID-19 on the state and what the future of beer in Minnesota looks like. Here's our conversation. My name is uh, Evan Salee. I am the CEO and one of the co-founders of Fair State Brewing Cooperative based out of Minnesota. And in your work for Fair State, Fair State, you know, as you noted, is a, is a cooperative. Can you tell us a little bit more about you know, how that works? Yeah, uh, great question. So it's uh, we're essentially owned by the community of beer drinkers, uh, primarily here in Minneapolis. So, you know, if you think about a corporation or an LLC, your more traditional uh, business entities, uh, a cooperative is actually a separate type of uh, entity. So, you know, Minnesota law has a cooperative statute that we're organized under. Uh, there's a lot of different types of cooperatives. Uh, people think, you know, there's businesses like Land Lakes that are owned by uh, farmers, for instance, you know, and they, the Land Lakes itself kind of serves as a collective entity in a way for these farmers to be able to sell their milk and other products. Uh, but, you know, we're organized as a consumer cooperative. 
which essentially means, you know, as I indicated, that we're owned by the people that actually drink our beer. Uh, a lot of people, uh, particularly here in Minneapolis, might be more familiar with that model uh, in the context of, let's say, a local grocery store. A, you know, a co-op grocery store is a pretty common way in which people interact with consumer co-ops. Uh, if uh, another uh, large consumer co-op is REI, you know, and so these are really our businesses where members of the community kind of band together uh, and actually have, you know, a share of ownership uh, in that business. And so they can kind of help direct it and make sure that that business really serves its community in the way that they uh, they want to see. And so how that plays out at Fair State is, you know, we actually have a nine member board of directors that's uh, elected democratically by our membership. So, you know, even though I started this business, uh, you know, they I actually report to them and they have a higher fire authority over me, uh, even though I'm the CEO, they still have to, you know, approve uh, certain expenditures and, you know, certain uh, taking on certain debt or selling assets or like large major decisions like that. And they have a, a pretty regular hand in uh, you know, looking at what we do and providing uh, feedback so that there is kind of that uh, really uh, exciting feedback loop that allows our biggest fans, our biggest members to, you know, really have a say in what this business looks like. Um, our members also actually have an entitlement to uh, a share of profit distributions as well. Uh, and that's uh, based on consumption at our tap room, basically like a refund, rather than based on like how many shares you own mm -hmm. as it would be in like a normal uh, corporation. Uh, and, you know, we, we have a lot of other for our members, you know, they can kind of see every day. Uh, but at its core, that's really what makes our business uh, structurally different from most breweries around there. And, you know, we're, we're not the first cooperatively owned brewery in the country. Uh, you know, I believe that honor goes to Black Star Brewing Cooperative down in Austin, Texas. But, uh, you know, we are one of the very first and, you know, still one of only a handful in the country that are organized that way. And what was the reason behind wanting to, to do the co-op model? And my understanding is you have a you have a tap room in Minneapolis uh, and also a production facility there as well. Correct. Yes. So uh, we've got our, our tap room that we opened in 2014. Uh, that's got a small seven and a half barrel system. That's kind of where everything started. Uh, and then a few years later, we opened a second production facility in St. Paul. Uh, Minnesota law doesn't allow us to have a second tap room, and so we don't, and we really just use that larger batches of beer than we're able to on our original 900-square-foot uh, brewery floor. Um, and, uh, I'm sorry, I think there was another part of that yep. question. That yeah, I, it was just sort of, how did you, how did you, why did you decide to go the co-op? Oh, yeah. So, uh, fr frankly, I think that we would not have just, we would not have done a brewery except as a co-op. Uh, you know, myself and my two co-founders, we kind of got our start home brewing. Uh, I had been a home brewer since I was 18. It was always a big passion of mine. And, uh, but we never really felt like actually, you know, starting a brewery or going into brewing professionally was really what we wanted to do. Uh, my co-founder, Nico, uh, subsequently uh, became a professional brewer. He worked down in Austin, Texas. And uh, so, you know, the fact that he got really good at brewing uh, made us revisit that idea a little bit. But we always felt that we needed something more to say than just being able to make really good beer. There's a ton of breweries out there uh, that make really great beer. And, you know, we, we always just felt that there needed to be something more. And that co-op idea is, is really, I think, what, you know, brought it together for us. Because what makes beer so special to me is the way that it brings people together, the way that it builds community. Every brewery 
many talks about building community because it really is in our bones as an industry of bringing people together. Uh, you know, many or maybe even most of the best friends in my life, I've you know made and solidified those relationships over beer. And uh, for us, we really felt like it was just a really powerful way to take that idea and really drive it further by uh, allowing people to, in a more concrete way, take control of that relationship, take control of what that business is going to look like and kind of have a say themselves on what they want their com community to look like and how they want to build it. So you raised the the topic of community and a question I've been you know talking with a lot of brewers and a lot of people in the industry about lately is, do you think uh, that craft beer is inclusive? Uh, no. Uh, I think it wants to be, or at least a, a large part of it wants to be, uh, but I, I, I don't think that it has, uh, I guess, lived up to its ideals there yet. Uh, you know, I, I can certainly say uh, that that's the case for us as Fair State, and I, th I think it is the case for the industry more broadly. Um, you know, we do a lot of work at Fair State to try to build that community in a more inclusive way, uh, but I, I think it's also clear that we have not really succeeded at that yet. Uh, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to, and I'm hopeful uh, that we'll be able to do more and, uh, you know, actually maybe see something that might look like success there. But right now, I don't, I don't think we're there. What sort of efforts has Fair State taken to, you know, promote diversity and inclusion within its own ranks? Yeah, uh, great question. So, you know, that, that we... From our perspective there, we've, you know, really tried to do a lot as far as um, actually like being out in communities, uh, making sure that we're kind of trying to go to people where they are. Uh, you know, so that involves a lot of, you know, community outreach and support, partnering uh, with local nonprofit uh, partners uh, who, you know, represent and really advocate, I think, for, uh, you know, a variety of uh, diverse communities in Minnesota. Uh, you know, so that we kind of are seen, people are familiar with us and that they understand who we are and where we try to come from. Uh, you know, so I do think that that component of outreach is, is a really important uh, way to kind of broaden, uh, you know, our staff and broaden our mission and, you know, what we do. Uh, but it also, you know, it's certainly not uh, far from sufficient to creating like an actually truly diverse staff. And, uh, you know, if I look at our staff, I would certainly say that it is it is not diverse uh, racially. And so, you know, that is one of those areas in which I, I just I don't think that we've succeeded despite our efforts, um, you know, and we have, uh, you know, set some internal standards around, you know, where job postings go, uh, how we uh, engage, I think, in trying to get you know, our jobs in front of people who might not otherwise uh, think of them. Uh, and also, you know, try to make sure that we're uh, in the, as much as we can eliminating bias from that hiring process, uh, you know, by through the ways that we uh, interview and through the ways that we uh, develop resumes. But, you know, frankly, I think that's a thing that we have not done as consistently as we should. Uh, and certainly, you know, not as, uh, I guess, systematically. And so that that is a thing that we are uh, currently in the process of, of really, really thinking uh, hard about how we do that so that we can do a better job. Obviously, this, you know, in the past week to 10 days, the, you know, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and the rest of the country, if not the world, has sort of been uh, racked by the death of George Floyd. Where were you and when did you first hear about his death? 
Uh, I was probably at home. Uh, I've been, you know, trying to comply as best I can with uh, social distancing and, uh, you know, trying to keep people safe from the, the pandemic that we've got. So uh, I'm, I'm sure that I was home uh, and I'm sure that I, I first heard about it uh, either by, you know, reading an article on the news or, you know, looking at uh, Twitter or some other uh, social media platform where I would have seen it. Um, you know, so that that's that's where I was. Uh, I mean, you know, seeing that video, frankly, I, I saw it before I realized that it had happened in Minneapolis, uh, and it was I don't know, it was just indescribably shocking. I mean, I, I'm I'm sure that for for many people, it, it maybe is not shocking. It's all too common of, of, of an occurrence, um, but it. It's just I don't know, devastating, I think, so, uh, something to see. And then to see that it, it did happen here. Um, I don't think I uh, was under under any uh, impression, I guess, that, you know, Minneapolis was free from uh, these issues. We've, we've certainly seen it in the recent past with, you know, Jamar Clark or, uh, you know, more recently, uh, Philando Castile. So, you know, these are problems that we've faced. Uh, and, you know, Minneapolis and St. Paul, you know, does also just have a, a really deep history of, you know, marginalizing uh, black communities. You know, if you, if you look at the way, for instance, that uh, I-94 was created, it, it, you know, just devastated these mm -hmm. uh, communities. And so, you know, there's there's an awful lot there. And uh, so you know, I was under no impression that that wasn't the case. Um, but at the same time, just any time that you see an innocent person, you know, killed on a video in front of you, it, it, I don't know, it really, it, it affects you deeply. And as someone who, you know, runs a business in Minneapolis, you know, how is your witnessing, how has the community response been? What is, what has been your experience so far witnessing that? Uh, it's really been heartening, I think, actually, to see the way that our community has responded, uh, to everything that has happened uh you know the the outpouring of rage and anger and grief uh is you know has, has really uh, obviously served as a catalyst for you know the rest of the nation uh to highlight the way that these injustices are uh you know pervasive here in minneapolis uh but also uh pervasive throughout the entire country so i think it's it's been really great to see how people have come together to you know advocate for much needed and you know, much delayed change. Uh, so that has been, I, I've been just really heartened, I guess, to, to see that. Uh, it's also been really encouraging, I think, to see the way that the community has come together to support each other, to, uh, you know, help provide protection. Uh, I mean, it's, it's pretty wild when, you know, you're sitting over the weekend and you've got a curfew that keeps you in it. Eight, and there's National Guard helicopters, uh, you know, Black Hawk helicopters flying overhead. You've got Humvees rolling down your street. I mean, you know, the National Guard is literally, you know, setting up shop, you know, five or six blocks from the brewery. Uh, it's, it's a pretty wild experience. Um, but also, you know, the police have been completely overwhelmed. And so our communities are coming together to protect each other, to protect themselves. Uh, but they're also trying to do it in... Uh, just ways, you know, so I see a lot of our neighborhoods are even, you know, at the block level, people coming together to think about how can they protect each other, but also how can they do it without just, you know, 
essentially on an ad hoc, smaller basis, recreating the injustices that got us here. Um, so that that's uh, certainly been, uh, to me, a, a positive sign that has come out of this, you know, just unspeakable tragedy. How has the Minnesota Brewing, you know, uh, my understanding is you are the current president of the Minnesota Brewers Guild, is that right? That is correct. And how has the Minnesota you know, craft brewing community responded to to the situation? Uh, you know, there's, uh, I think each of the breweries uh, have really done a lot, I think, to, to support uh, their communities in, in kind of different ways. You know, so about half of Minnesota's breweries are like in the Twin Cities metro area. And so I think a lot of the action, you know, just naturally has been kind of primarily focused there. But you know, some some of our breweries uh, were in the areas that have been, uh, you know, hardest hit by the rioting. Uh, thankfully, I'm I'm not aware of any brewery that was you know completely destroyed, but I I do know that uh, some have been affected by that, and so that kind of limits their capacities. But uh, you know, a, a lot of breweries are handing out water to protesters, providing I saw you know breweries handing out free hot dogs, and really finding ways to support. Uh, those who are out there seeking change. And I think that that's what uh, the vast majority of our breweries uh, have been doing. I think most in the Twin Cities have issued some form of a statement uh, in support of uh, these actions or at the very least condemning the murder of George Floyd. Uh, the, the Brewers Guild itself did release a, a similar statement. Um, you know, so, so we're doing a lot. You know, there's a ton of people who are like picking up food because uh, you know, a lot of this destruction has affected some of these communities who, you know, now they no longer have a grocery store, for instance, uh, or there's just, you know, people who are now uh, without jobs uh, because of this. And so, you know, there's been a lot of people trying to find ways to get food or other support and supplies uh, to people who need it. And a lot of breweries have been taking a really strong hand in helping, uh, helping people out and, you know, helping their communities find ways to direct uh, that aid to where it is needed. Um, but, you know, I think this, this is another thing where we as an industry are going to have to really take an opportunity to think about why, I guess, did it take us this long to really grapple with this as an issue? Mm -hmm. uh, why? Uh, and, and really, what do we do to go from here? Uh, you know, we we have it's incumbent on us to not let this be a flash in the pan, uh, a thing that, you know, we kind of pay lip service to for a, a week or two, and then we move on to something that's next. But, you know, we really have to uh, really from the ground up find ways to incorporate more voices into our community, because that's what we say that we're all here for. Uh, and if we can't build a community that's built on equity, and one that is built on bringing all types of people into it, then, I, you know, I don't know what we're doing here. To sort of transition into the COVID situation, how has Fair State uh, been been faring, you know, in the wake of the pandemic? Well, I, I don't think anybody would say that it's been easy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, right. it, it's it's been really tough. Uh, you know, obviously, to see all of our uh, sales to bars and restaurants uh, completely evaporate uh, overnight, literally, uh, has been really hard to deal with um, you know that, that's a really substantial portion of our revenue and then to, to couple that with the loss of taproom sales as well uh, has been really difficult uh, I think taprooms are important for a lot of different breweries uh, and we're 
we're really, really fortunate that, you know, we do have that capacity to sell beer in cans, sell beer to liquor stores, so that we can actually keep selling and producing products because, you know, there are just a ton of breweries out there that are smaller than us that I think are struggling a lot more because they don't have that outlet. Uh, but that said, it is also tough because our kind of cooperative ethos is really built around that tapper that's built around using it as a place to bring people together, as a place to educate, as a place to learn, as a place to commune, and to not have that thing that is really our foundation has been really difficult. So, you know, we've been trying to find new ways to engage with our members and, you know, to help facilitate uh, them engaging with each other uh, to help make sure that, you know, they can stay safe and, and healthy uh, through, through this pandemic. And also obviously make sure that all of our operations are, uh, you know, as clean and uh, sanitary as possible to make sure that we're not helping to spread this disease. So, you know, so that's, that's been a big focus of ours as well. Um, you know, but our, our sales are still down. Uh, we have had to furlough staff uh, and, you know, n nobody, nobody likes to do that. Um, it's, it's been pretty rough. It's the first time, frankly, in the history of our business that we've had to do anything like that. Um, and it's, it's been really hard. But that said, uh, the past, you know, month or so, we have started to really see some bright spots. Um, you know, we've seen our sales kind of starting to rebound a little bit. Uh, as I think we get into the summer where people just like to drink more, I think mm -hmm. people are getting a little bit more just kind of used to this as the new status quo. And uh, so, you know, we are seeing things pick up a bit for us. We're also just, you know, as a team operationally figuring out how to work in this new normal. And that's obviously uh, helping us uh, manage this business as well. What about yeah, as the president of the Minnesota Brewers Guild, you know, you sort of have a yeah. view of the entire state. How are other breweries faring? And are you expecting to see any closures, uh, you know, in, in respect to this? It, uh, it, it breaks my heart, but I would be surprised if we don't see any closures. Uh, to my knowledge, we haven't seen any yet. Um, but we've been surveying our membership on a pretty regular basis to see how they're doing, to see what kinds of support they've gotten, what kinds of uh, further support they need. And, um, you know, the, the last survey that we sent out, more than half of our state's breweries said that they didn't think they'd be able to survive uh, through to fall uh, if something big didn't change. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's, a, that's a pretty stark reality the, to be sitting in where, you know, this state that has seen such a vibrant explosion of breweries, as I'm sure so many other states have, uh, you know, breweries in Minneapolis and St. Paul, but also breweries uh, you know, at every part of the state, uh, breweries that have really served to revitalize uh, small communities that, uh, you know, didn't have a lot of reasons to, to bring everybody together into, you know, one place and that have really helped build that uh, and to see those threatened and, you know, facing existential crisis. Uh, it's pretty terrible. And, you know, frankly, the state has not really done much, if anything, to support us. So mm -hmm. we're kind of feeling out, out on our own here. And what does the new normal look like? What is the situation, you know, the state of play in Minnesota right now with respect to the possibility of reopening and staging and all of that? Yeah. So uh, June 1st was the day uh, which uh, we were allowed to open beer gardens. Um, you know, Fair State was not planning on opening its beer garden on the 1st anyway. Uh, I think the events of the past week. Um, even if we had been, we right. probably would not have done that. 
Uh, and so I, I know that there that has disrupted the situation for a lot of uh, Twin Cities breweries, uh, but a lot of breweries throughout the state ha have opened their beer gardens. And so, you know, the state has mandated that we take reservations uh, and they've mandated that, you know, maximum party of four and also that uh, we maintain social distancing and that everybody has to wear masks. So, you know, there's, there's pretty heavy restrictions and it's, it's certainly not maybe quite the environment that you imagine when you think of, of going to a brewery that's maybe a little bit more freewheeling and right. exciting. Um, but that said, you know, it's, it's certainly helpful to our, all of our breweries to help them keep the lights on, to help them find an outlet uh, to, you know, continue to build their businesses or at least to continue to hang on. And so I'm certain that that has been uh, meaningful or at least, at least will be once all the breweries are able to take advantage of it. Um, but of course, not every brewery has a beer garden. And so, you know, that, that's just simply not going to be able to help everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the state, the governor has not provided really any guidance or set an expectation of when they expect to kind of further thaw restrictions. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think some were, were expecting it this month. I, I personally am a, a little worried that uh the the fact that these protests caused so many people to uh be so close to each other that we may see an explosion in uh you know COVID-19 mm -hmm. instances in this state and that that might end up kind of slowing down the governor's reopening plans uh accordingly but I think we'll have to see this the state thankfully has really ramped up testing and they've recommended that every person that's attended some sort of a protest get tested so hopefully maybe we'll get some data there, or at least give people the tools to know when they need to stay at home uh, to maybe minimize that uh, growth. I think I had seen online that Fair State had been planning or is, is maybe just recently announced some sort of an expansion. Yeah. So um, this has been a thing that I've been trying to do for a few years. It's uh, basically our, uh, there's a bike shop that's next door to us that had a, uh, little or underused uh, garage behind it. And that garage just happens to be directly adjacent to our beer garden. Um, so I, this has been a thing that had been in the works for us for a very, very long time. And uh, we were basically set to announce it right when the coronavirus crisis hit. And so that pushed our, our project back a fair bit. And it, and it is somewhat, I think, uh, under jeopardy, but we've been able to Put together i think a, a solid plan uh that would allow us to to move forward on it and uh you know our taproom is is reasonably small in the grand scheme of things and so actually i think in the context of the coronavirus having that extra space is that is actually really important for us mm -hmm. to be able to provide for adequate safety and social distancing for our staff and for our patrons uh so you know we're going to be uh trying pretty hard to to move forward on that it, it's not really a substantial increase to our production capacity or like what we can do or think about as far as making beer there. But it, it is, I think, hopefully a way for us to really think about how we do service and how we do hospitality in kind of a new and different way, because this gives us essentially two areas to play around with. Uh, our original tap room, we've really built that on the idea that talking to people is the best way to mm -hmm. really build community. And uh, I don't know about you, but like sometimes if I go to a bar, if I go to a place and I kind of get ambushed by an event, it's not a pleasant experience. Mm -hmm. So 
we've really tried to minimize that at the tap room to just make it sure that people know that when they show up, they can expect to be able to have a conversation with their friends and that that's like a consistent thing that they can have. Mm -hmm. So now having this new space really gets us, it gives us the ability to reimagine the kinds of things that we can do to build our community, uh, to do more outreach and kind of do more uh, concrete things, but also reimagine what a tap room could, can look like maybe, you know, building, uh, you know, we'll have like a new theme there for a few months or something like that. And really just trying to have it as a, as a playful space. And I think I was also seeing that you have just recently opened up a new market in Texas. Was that something that was part of a plan or is that just in response to, to COVID now you, you have extra beer that you're looking to, to sort of move to, to a new market? Yeah, that, that was actually part of the plan. Uh, so, you know, uh, as I said, our, our head brewer, Nico, he got his start brewing professionally down in Texas. We have a lot of connections and friends down there. Uh, and it's it's just a huge, massive beer market. And so that, that had always been a place that we were kind of interested in working with. And so uh, we had been thinking about that as a market for a, a long time. And then we've, you know, developed a relationship with our wholesaler, Flood, down there. Uh, and so, you know, I think we, we had decided that we would be launching there. Frankly, we thought that the pandemic would preclude us from launching in Texas. We, did, we didn't think that we would effectively be able to launch a brand uh, because, you know, our beer launch strategies here to four have really so uh, deeply focused on, you know, the on-prem because I think that's that's really kind of the, the traditional way in which you go about a launch. You know, you focus on the on-prem and getting the, the beer in people's hands in that way. And you use that to really drive the growth of your brand. Uh, that said, we, you know, our, our sales team uh, and production team worked hand in hand with Flood and they, they were able to come up with a plan to allow us to, to launch that market anyway. And it's, it's actually been going uh, really, really well. So, um, yeah, we're, we're excited to be down there. And as it goes, as I'm apparently just trolling through all of your social media for questions, one of the other things that I noticed was uh, the announcement of your, I think, I think it's Cooperates Partners. Can you talk to me about your yeah. 2020 partners for that? All right. Let me, let me just pull up the list just to make sure I don't give anybody short trips. So Fair State Cooperates is, uh, that's kind of how we organize and systematize a lot of our charitable giving. We do, we do other stuff too, but this is, you know, primarily the vehicle. And so the way that it works is every year uh, we, we select 12 partners to work with and each one of them gets assigned a month. Uh, our members actually democratically elect these partners. Uh, so, you know, that is just another way in which our membership has a say in kind of what we do and who we support. Uh, we usually try to find ways to also allow our members to uh, you know, get their hands dirty and do some amount of volunteering in support of these partners. Uh, we used to have that as a requirement, although uh, it became clear that not all people that we would want to support have the capacity to, you know, be able to engage, you know, random volunteers on a weekend in that way. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we kind of made that less of a strict requirement. Uh, but that said, 10% uh, of all of our taproom to go sales go to each of those partners every month. So the kind of crazy thing is that as the uh, pandemic crisis set upon us, we really renewed our commitment to that. And so now even though, you know, we're selling dramatically more to go out of our taproom than we were before the pandemic, uh, we're still donating that 10%. And so that's really allowed us to ramp up our support for our community at the time that it's most needed. So uh, 
for 2020, we wanted to focus uh, our support a little bit more. So um, we decided to limit the Cooperates partners to ones who worked in the broad uh, areas, I guess, of democracy, uh, justice, and climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I actually think in the, you know, the wake of this, the George Floyd murder that it actually set us up quite well because, you know, we already have some of these relationships with organizations that were doing some of that really deep uh, work building uh, justice in the communities that need it the most, you know, so uh, we've, we've got a few here, like, uh, you know, I want to call it the, the Black Visions Collective has do, been doing really, really amazing work uh, through this whole situation, advocating for justice on the ground. Uh, you know, they're a, a key player uh, here. Um, Brewing Change Minnesota is also uh, an organization that is really helping to try to push our industry so that uh, maybe at, at some point, if somebody asks me if our industry is actually, actually inclusive, I can say yes. Yep. Um, I've been working with the Minnesota Prison Doula Project. Uh, just, you know, and I know that you are uh, well aware of the uh, issues that our carceral system presents to a lot of different people. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, that project really does a a lot of good work of helping to make sure that women who are incarcerated, despite being uh, pregnant, uh, are at least able to uh, go through that experience in in something that could be close to a a humane way. Uh, You know, those are obviously just a few of the the people we work with. um, But, you know, it is a really, I think, important part of, of who we are as a business and what we do to support our communities. Well, Evan, I want to thank you, you know, for taking the time to talk to us today. And uh, I feel like I've been saying this a lot lately to people I interview, but I do look forward to seeing you soon, hopefully in person, to be able to share a beer. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, I, I appreciate you having me on. I appreciate your time. I hope that you and yours are able to stay safe as well. And I'd love to actually be able to drink another Pilsner with you soon. As he does most weeks, our editor at Beer Edge, John Hall, joins us on the line. How you doing, John? You know, Andy, I'm reminded of this quote that uh, my friend at the Washington Post, Sungman Kim, once said, what a century this week has been. Yes. It, and yeah, it, really it kind is. of feels like it. Yes, we have seen, we've gone from COVID coverage to Black Lives Matter and the death of George Floyd, the protests and... Uh, action in the streets that have happened from coast to coast. You know, it's yeah. right around the time that some states are starting to reopen. You know, there some are putting a toe in the water. Others are going a little bit more active about it. But it has been it has been a, an incredibly difficult week and one that, uh, you know, one that I don't think any of us are going to forget anytime soon. No, and, and breweries, certainly, and the ones that I spoke to this week are really facing that. Uh, headlong. I mean, we have to remember most breweries right now are at reduced staff. You know, a lot of people are furloughed. A lot of people are gone. Uh, There's a lot of PR people and social media teams that were part of breweries that have been uh, temporarily, we hope, uh, relieved from their duties. And so the owners or the people who were put in charge of social media handles were just probably getting a handle on okay, how do we communicate regularly about COVID to now all of a sudden having to talk about what everybody is talking about? And as you just said, uh, the death of George Floyd and uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. And so they're really trying hard to navigate both worlds right now. And some are doing a good job of it and others 
Well, others aren't. Yeah, some some places are certainly doing better than others. We've seen a few breweries from around the country, you know, specifically at least one in my home state of Illinois, you know, doing some things on social media that, you know, as you put it, you know, the last place you ever want to end up is on Worst Beer Blog. But, you know, that place that place has kept itself busy this week with uh, with breweries around the country reacting either poorly to Black Lives Matter or just being just so grossly insensitive and trying to make money on it, profit or otherwise, you know, just make some names for themselves that, you know, it's you almost never miss an opportunity. Some of these places to, to really cough the ball up. Well, the interesting thing, too, is for a long time, and I, I know I've been saying this a lot recently, but restaurants and breweries and businesses really weren't supposed to talk about sex, politics and religion. And the last three years has made that almost impossible for every place not to wade into mm. the national conversation, whatever that is. And it's usually falling among politics. And, you know, sometimes it's falling uh, into other situations like what we're going on right now. And to not respond is to almost seem complacent. Right. And that's th- so that's the I think the real navigation that uh, breweries are facing right now of they don't necessarily know how to respond. You know, you hope that they want to say, hey, this is terrible and we need to find a solution towards it. Um, but even saying that, and and you know this from your own social media, when a brewery takes any sort of stance, you're always going to get the people who say, why don't you just shut up and stick to beer? Right. And that's a response that business owners don't want because like they want to be inclusive. They want like people from all walks of life to come and hang out in their tap room and drink their beer. And when you say something that can be uh, divisive towards some, you're going to lose some customers. But I think what people are realizing more and more and a lot of the breweries that I spoke to this week are saying, well, we have a soul and we have a conscience and we really need to make sure that people know where we stand. And if people don't agree with us and agree with, you know, a progressive movement, well, then, you know, they can go find someplace else to go drink because, you know, they don't need to come to us. They're not saying they're not welcome, but they're basically saying, you know, this is who we are. This is what we stand for. You can like it or not. And that's something that even, you know, three years ago, four years ago, uh, I think would have been much more difficult for a lot of breweries to convey and to put out there. I think breweries along those lines have, have really been hesitant to make themselves part of the story, to make that, you know, to make part of their brand defined at all by any kind of public statements. But I think, as you said, the last three years with the political climate that we are in, you know, we are a nation that is as divided down the middle as you can as you can get on either one side or the other. And it makes it difficult to to sort of navigate those circumstances. But also with some of these issues, uh, especially, say, the death of George Floyd, these are human rights issues, you know, and, and to yeah. some and to a large extent, silence is complicity here. And so to not stand up and to not say something or not even undertake minimal efforts to acknowledge what has happened either in the local communities, you know, we talked with, uh, you know, the owner or the co-founder of Fair State on this podcast today, and he talks about the impacts it's had in Minneapolis. Uh, but beyond that, whether you're a brewery there or a brewery in Florida, let alone a brewery in, in France or Belgium, it may be time, like you're saying, that, you know, we have to put beyond, you know, this whole idea of just sticking to beer beyond, you know, you know, past us and get to a point now where we ha- there may be subjects that, we have to wade in. We have to to try to do that. Um, and, and I agree that 
at this time, especially with reduced staffs, you know, a lot of brewery owners are not necessarily built for public relations or media or social media. And so some of them are, are tripping or not doing as well. But I think these these growing pains probably should have been experienced, you know, years, if not a decade ago. And I'm just happy to now see, you know, these breweries starting to take a stance on, you know, I'm not saying you need to get out there in front of every single political issue, though there are certainly some breweries that define themselves that way. But I think mm-hmm. and issues that you know come down to pure human rights, I think, you know, at some point, these are companies that that claim to be a part of a community that want to promote the idea of inclusivity and community. And so, you know, it's time to step up. And it's not just enough to put a social media post up. It's not just enough to you know, change an avatar right. to an all black square. Um what I'm really seeing from all of this right now, especially in, in, in the beer space, because that's where I pay the most attention, uh, is people reminding folks saying, like, you need to talk about this tomorrow and next week and next month and right. at Christmas and this time next year and beyond. It needs to become a regular part of the conversation, not just a, you know, to, to, to sort of use the common phrase of thoughts and prayers today. Uh, it really needs to become a lasting and and you know solid part of people's existence and so um you know i think the breweries i hope are paying attention to that and not just saying okay well we did our part on on tuesday um what else do you want from us uh i I think a lot of places are going to be held accountable going forward for saying well what are you doing to continue this going forward yeah and i think we've talked about it before dr j who we had on the podcast a couple of weeks back yeah, two weeks uh, you know, back. makes yeah makes a makes it clear that you know you can't just have you know one all hands meeting and talk about diversity and inclusion and pat yourselves on the back and say we're done for the year. So the work continues right. and the work you know people need to get their hands dirty and, and get into the to the bones of this. Um, and this week in the Beer Edge newsletter, I know you had a essay uh, with respect to you know changing perspectives and it's something we'll be posting on our website soon and maybe on by the time that you listen to this podcast. So I would recommend folks get out there and and read more about it, and we will certainly be doing coverage uh, on this issue continuing into the future. But to sort of transition, we're also seeing these breweries you know reopen right now. We're starting to see the challenges yeah. and and the difficulties you know outside of places like Minneapolis that have their own distinct uh, issues that they're dealing with. But around the country, you know whether they are in cities or in vacation areas. We're starting to see places reopen. So what are the conversations that you've had this week with with folks who are, are trying to navigate that? Yeah, as people are getting into phase one, two, three, uh, as you know, restaurants are starting to open up and allow people for dining experiences and et cetera. Um, yeah, what I'm seeing right now is, for the most part, craft brewers are doing pretty well, especially in vacation spots. So I've talked to folks in the Pocono Mountains. I've talked to folks uh, in the Carolinas. I've talked to some folks um uh, in more, you know, vacation type destinations that are not necessarily big cities. Uh, so, you know, places where you can go and still be socially distant. So, you know, mountain towns and lake towns and, uh, you know, more secluded shore towns, as, as it were. And the breweries in those places are saying that they had a pretty good Memorial Day weekend. Uh, the weather was in their favor, uh, but curbside pickup was, uh, was, was picking up. I talked to one brewery uh, who told me that they did 400 cases uh, in, in the course for a weekend. Cool. And, you know, for them, like that was actually really great. That's a, that's amazing. I know there's some big breweries out there that do that in an afternoon, but for, you know, a small brewery that's doing, 
uh, you know, 1200 barrels a year, uh, you know, they, they, they made their money back. And so um, it's showing that people are still spending money. It's showing that people are still supporting local and, you know, that's a, that, that's a reassuring sign right now is, you know, we are still in uncertain economic times and we're still in uncertain uh, COVID times, certainly. You know, th- this last week, it can be easy to forget that we're, you know, under various stages of lockdown and that there is a pandemic around us. But, uh, you know, breweries are certainly feeling that and it's very acute for them right now. And uh, a, a kickoff, an unofficial kickoff to summer uh, for, for some of these vacation destinations, I think, is a, is a pretty decent sign that... Uh, you know, the economy is still supporting craft. And so we'll, we'll see if it continues, you know, check in with these folks over 4th of July weekend to see where we're at and report back then. We definitely will have plenty more conversations, both in this podcast and in the newsletter coming up in, in weeks and months to come. Uh, John, as always, appreciate your stopping by. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Andy. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Beer Edge podcast. This show is produced by Beer Edge and co-hosted by myself and John Hall. We know it's lonely during COVID-19, so if you want to reach out, we look forward to hearing from you. I can be reached at BeerScribe on Twitter or via email at andy at beeredge.com. If you've got some time, and we know you do, drop a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Be sure to check out our revamped Beer Edge website, where we're posting new articles every week. Also be sure to check out John Hall's other podcast, Drink Beer, Think Beer, which drops every Wednesday. We'll catch you next week with another episode of the Beer Edge Podcast. Until then, stay safe and healthy.